I'm sitting here in our quiet room, hoping that there won't be too many interruptions while we make this recording. We discovered a year or two ago that this room was added onto the original house nearly a hundred years ago by Christians who were using the house for prayer and hospitality, just as it is now, many years later. I love the way the Lord brings things to completion. Well, we're going to be looking today at a special book of the Bible. We're going to be looking at the book of James. The New Testament is unique in that it was written by people who walked with the Lord Jesus or who came to know him by revelation. Now, James was someone who knew the Lord Jesus intimately, but he didn't realize who he really was until after the resurrection when the Lord appeared to him. He was actually the Lord Jesus' own brother. And we find him in Acts chapter 15, having become the central figure in the church at Jerusalem, opening the way for Gentiles to be accepted into the church and sending out a circular letter to the churches to keep them from falling into legalism. And we're going to meditate on a number of key themes that James raises. The need for perseverance and wisdom in the face of our trials and temptations. Teachers, tithing and twin themes of mercy and judgment. The extremely sensitive matter of why we need to watch the things that we say. And finally, we're going to look at why some prayers are spectacularly answered and others not. What I can't tell you very much about is the man himself. There's a second century description of James which shows him to have been a rather ascetic sort of person, much given to spending long hours on his knees in prayer. We know that he was a pillar of the church in Jerusalem, where he was known as James the Just. And we know that the church grew strong under his leadership, which led to the Jewish leaders persecuting him. Eusebius tells us that he was pushed off the pinnacle of the temple in the year 66, and since he didn't die outright from that, he was stoned to death and became a martyr. The epistle he wrote is one of the earliest parts of the New Testament. It was written before Paul's great missionary travels. And whoever he originally wrote his epistle for, it contains teaching and exhortation that relate to the social and spiritual conditions of Christians in every age. So whether you're an established church leader or the youngest convert, whether you're in regular work or not, you're going to find relevant principles here for your own life. Now, modern readers find this epistle a bit hard to come to terms with because the fact is we aren't accustomed to the meditative style of wisdom literature which anticipates that people will take a small section and then pause to apply it in their lives, whereas modern readers tend to expect a logically coherent whole. Now, I find more and more these days that I'm reading the scriptures or some spiritual book just until I sense the Lord speaking to me, and I call this reflective reading. Bible study is very important, and we're feeding ourselves a seriously deficient diet if we're not doing it. But there are times when I just don't have the time or the energy to do it, and so I prefer at those times just to read and talk issues over with the Lord as they come up until I get his marching orders for the day or for some particular situation. And this work of reflection we can do anywhere. It's been lovely recently to work with Bill and Laurie Klein, and Laurie describes how she always keeps a bag close by her with her Bible, notebook and coloured pens packed and ready. Whenever she gets a spare moment, she sidles off to spend time with the Lord, and when the Lord speaks to her, she writes down what he said, in red. And what she calls creative journaling is something that I think that many of us could usefully benefit from doing. And you'll find that you'll get the most out of listening to this talk if you pause to pray between the different sections.
It does take a bit of effort to see the links between the themes that James is dealing with. And so you'll find it helpful to have the book of James open in front of you as we read. And I'd like to begin by taking hold of one particular phrase and holding it up as a sort of backdrop before we begin the tour of the book. It's a phrase which beautifully captures God's unchangeableness. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who doesn't change like shifting shadows. The sun and the moon wax and wane, as we've seen recently, performing all manner of complicated Cornish eclipses, and we know from our own circumstances that constant change is here to stay. But the Father of lights, who created all things, never changes. And he bids us to come and share in his heart and to explore his purposes through the people we meet and the situations that he leads us to. I love that phrase as Barclay translates it, every good and every perfect boon comes from the Father of Lights. In the Greek, this text makes a perfect hexameter line of poetry. It's a fine rhythmic cadence that expresses a beautiful and a powerful concept that nothing that comes from the hand of the Lord can, by definition, be anything but good. If you were to ask the average congregation at the moment whether they're going through trials and tribulations, I think you'd hear a resounding, you bet. The powers of darkness are making intense attacks against Christians at the moment, against their central beliefs and doctrines, against their loyalty to one another, that's particularly true of marriages, and against whatever it is that God has promised them. By every means possible, the enemy is trying to ruin the health, the spiritual health of God's people, and to say the least, this is no time to be taking the armour off. What do we need to cope with these trials? Perseverance, says James, and faith. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. It's hardly a concept that would guarantee the book a place in today's top ten. Joy in the face of such trials? Unnatural reactions to say, deep joy, and to run in the opposite direction. But James advocates perseverance. It's the opposite of cutting and running. The Greek word for perseverance is hupomene, and it literally means to abide under the pressure. Without perseverance, or steadfastness, or patience, as other translations puts it, nothing valuable is ever brought to birth. Jesus modelled it by not running away from doing his Father's will, even when opposition was coming towards him from every quarter. Now you know there are some people who are only really happy when they're miserable and they've got something good to moan about. That is not what James is talking about. He's telling us that the more we trust the Lord to transform our difficulties and our disappointments, the less room we give in our hearts to doubt and despair. Now there is, however, a very big difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is like suffering from a faith illness, which the Lord understands but wants to heal us of. Doubt and perplexity can actually serve as a tool to make us more prayerful. Whereas genuine unbelief 
can never serve any useful purpose. Hope deferred, as the King James Version puts it, maketh the heart sick, Proverbs 13.12. But when dreams come true at last, there's life and joy, as the rest of the verse says in the Living Bible. Now there may be a significant time gap between the hopes being deferred and the dreams coming true. Many years sometimes while the vision simmers on the back burner and the head chef appears to have left the kitchen. But he hasn't forgotten what he's preparing and he'll still be on time and in place in our lives. You've probably known times when you've set out to do the will of the Lord, you've had initial confirmations that you're on the right track, but then you begin to experience severe setbacks. And it begins to feel as though the Lord has led you deliberately into the zone of maximum conflict and difficulty. Why such buffetings? Peter tells us not to be surprised when such things come our way, because the shaking and the testing are designed to prove our faith genuine, of greater worth than gold itself. And in ways that we can't always appreciate at the time, trials are developing our faith and our perseverance. And if you're currently experiencing great trials, it may be a sign that you can be trusted with them, that you've graduated and moved on beyond the lesser ones that plagued you last year, that you're ready to climb to greater heights. There's another side to it. The more important our mission is, the greater threat it poses to Satan's kingdom, and therefore the greater the battle will be. It's important to use even the attacks of the enemy as well as our spiritually dry times, as a sort of goad to seeking the Lord more. Somebody said once that it was the devil's attacks that had taught them to pray unceasingly in the power of the Holy Spirit. But when difficulties come our way, it's easy to feel vulnerable and victimised. None of us naturally relishes trials, and yet if we can face them properly, they can tell us a great deal about ourselves and about the world around us. And if you look through the records of great accomplishment through the centuries, you'll find that it was often some intense difficulty or suffering which inspired great creativity. And sometimes we find that what at first sight appeared to be a complete tragedy was in retrospect a stepping stone to new blessings. I've just read an excellent book by R.T. Kendall. It's called God Meant It For Good. And it's based on the story of Joseph. It's a well-written and thought-provoking book. And it's a useful reminder of that same truth that episodes which we're inclined to regard at the time as being a disaster may in the long run turn out to be utterly beneficial for us. Many years ago we made strenuous efforts to buy a large house near Ludlow. The vision was right, but the timing and the details were wrong. All our efforts came to nothing. And now, some years later... We just praise God that he didn't allow it to work out because the house he has given us is infinitely nicer and more appropriate and so are the gardens and the suitability of the location. But we found it extremely painful and bewildering at the time. There are bound to be times when we find it very hard to count it all joy because we are wrestling against strong forces of sin, secularism and Satan as well as with the sometimes considerable complexities of coping with God's providence. <laughs> Intense times of caring for the young or the old are exhausting. I remember Alex Buchanan saying that the only time he was in serious danger of losing the joy of the Lord was when his children were teething. And it's so easy to say when the pressure's really on, 
The Lord's forsaken me. The Lord's forgotten me. That's a quote from Isaiah 49:14. It slips out of our hearts and into our mouths before we really before we notice it, and we're quite wrong to say it. The Lord hasn't forgotten us at all. In the revised version, it says in Psalm 25:10, "All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness." All, by definition, means all. As George Muller puts it, in 1,000 trials, it's not 500 of them that work for the believer's good, but 999 of them, and one besides. No one's pretending that trials are easy to bear, but it's comforting to remember that we are where we are as a result of His choosing. We may have no idea where we're being led. Everything may feel up in the air and confused, but we can trust the One who is leading us. In Isaiah 51:22, the Lord says, "See, I've taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger." Now that's a word of encouragement for some of you who are emerging from particularly testing times. But it's easy to testify when you're the other side of a trial. Derek Price, our curate, did something rather different the other day. He invited people forward to come and share the trials that they're currently in the midst of. People shared their failures and their disappointments very honestly, and it made you feel as though you knew the people concerned much better, and made you want to pray for them much more because they were so honest. So, if you're going through the mill at the moment, can I suggest that you try translating that verse from Isaiah into the future tense? See, I will take out of your hand the cup that has been making you stagger. The trials will bear fruit. Even these ones that seem so difficult, and you will move on again. You may need help from others. You'll need to be honest with them in the way, but you will move on again, and you'll look back and see that the Lord has somehow managed to make them, but those stumbling stones into stepping stones for blessing. Eugene Peterson introduces James one five to seven in this way: If you don't know what you're doing, pray to the Father. He loves to help. You'll get his help, and won't be condescended to when you ask for it. Ask boldly, believingly, without a second thought. People who worry their prayers are like wind-whipped waves. Don't think you're going to get anything from the Master that way. Adrift at sea, keeping all your options open. You know the passage from the old hymn. What a friend we have in Jesus! Have we trials or temptations? Take it to the Lord in prayer. It's good to commit our way to Him and to ask Him questions. He loves to give us answers when we're ready to hear them. A couple of years ago, I was agonising about how we were going to meet the expenses for one of our conferences, and the Lord said to me very clearly one day, "I'm giving you this conference as a gift." But what's the use of my promise if you aren't willing to believe it? Whoops! My fears had been blocking my faith, but mercifully, the Lord proved bigger than my fears. If our fears and worries help us to face situations prayerfully, well and good. But we must be very careful not to allow them to dominate our lives, because they are born of fear. And fear has a horrible way of breeding further fears that make it hard for us to trust the Lord's reassurances. Worst of all, when certain longed-for things don't work out as we'd hoped, fear can combine with unbelief 
to make us cynical. Faith and cynicism are complete opposites. And if there's any tendency towards cynicism in our thinking when we're 40 years old, it will probably be deeper by the time we're 50, and worse again when we're 65. That's why we have to keep spring-cleaning our hearts to make sure that we're operating from a basis of faith rather than fear. As James puts it, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. People would say in the world that it's inevitable that as the years go by we'll become more cynical because we've had longer to see things not working out in. Not so, says Proverbs 4.18. The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn shining ever brighter till the full light of day. And I pray that the Lord will expand the capacity of our hearts to be able to receive more of this light. I've been watching a young tree in a wood near Ludlow for the past ten years. It's been doing its best to grow, but because it's growing up right under the shade of two much larger trees, it's had to bend and stretch itself to get the sunlight that it needs. And I think that's a sort of picture of how we need to keep reaching out to the Lord, lest we hold back in his service. We've got to find the sunlight and let it come into our hearts. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, 105, that we're to hold his word as a lantern to light our path. Now, obviously, in those days, halogen headlights hadn't been invented. And although the Lord does permit us occasional glimpses of his longer-term purposes, a lantern is still the best way to describe God's guidance. We have to hold it low and stoop down to see by its light. And as we take the one or two steps that we can along the right path, so the Lord goes ahead of us to prepare the way further down the path for us. He's committed to leading his people. Now James has promised us here in these verses that God will give us the wisdom that we need concerning the many practical or intellectual problems that we grapple with. But wisdom, biblically speaking, is about more than just providing answers to the questions how and why. It's all about living wisely and thus demonstrating wisdom. And this comes from leading a life of prayer. If we meet our trials with constancy, we'll receive the crown of life. The crosses that we have to bear mercifully are only for a limited duration, but we'll wear the crown for all eternity. As Barclay puts it, the struggle is the way to glory, and the very struggle itself is a glory. Now, we try to dodge this process and get out of it prematurely. I heard of one person who saw a butterfly struggling to emerge from its chrysalis and out of the kindness of their heart decided to give it a helping hand by setting it free from the chrysalis. What he didn't realise was that the struggle the butterfly has to go through at this point is what develops enough strength in its wings to enable it to fly. And James is quite insistent that the trials are specifically sent our way to build and perfect our character. And he was following the traditional teaching of the Jewish wisdom school of thought in that respect. But Jewish thought, traditionally, the rabbis would go on to reason that since God is the creator of all things, then he must also have created the evil impulse in man. Now, by logical extension, that would mean that man is not responsible for his sin, and James is having none of that. Chapter 1, verse 13 onwards. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, give birth to, gives birth to death. Now, 
At best, we long for good and godly desires. But none of us are automatically safeguarded from harboring the wrong sort of desires. You know, the sort that the Ten Commandments specifically forbid. And just before you protest that you're not an adulterer or a murderer, remember it was the commandment not to covet that caught Paul out. A seemingly stray thought comes our way, and it hooks into some buried hope or imagination. And the more we dwell on it, the stronger it becomes until it succeeds in weakening our will and enticing us away. And it's at this point that as we yield to its seducing suggestions that sin is conceived, and the consequences are always serious. This is the civil war that's waged within the heart of men, and the Jews understood that. They described these two tendencies as the yestahaton, the good tendency, and yestahara, the evil tendency. And it's quite possible that we find ourselves caught up in such a delusion of dualism between the two that we end up in the BSE syndrome, blame someone else. We blame circumstances, we blame what other people have done to us, or the way we were made. In other words, effectively, we end up blaming God. And James has less than no sympathy with all this. There's nothing in the nature of God that we can rightly blame. He's very forthright in dealing with issues which bring darkness to our soul and which keep the Father of Lights at bay. Surprisingly, Satan, who really is the source of so many of our trials and temptations, isn't specifically mentioned here at all. James was in no mood to provide the sinner with an excuse for not facing up to his own shortcomings. As Eugene Peterson translates the verse we've just had read to us, we have no one to blame but the leering, seducing flare-up of our own lust. Lust gets pregnant and has a baby, sin. Sin grows up to adulthood and becomes a real killer. The only thing that will really help to keep us free from sin is our love for the Lord. Our fear of grieving Him must be greater than all the other fears and desires that run through our minds. The fear of the Lord is deep and clean, and it extends to embrace every part of our life. Let's pray for more of it in our inmost being. The second chapter of James begins with a strong warning against allowing fashionable public opinion to shape our behaviour. The kingdom of God does not operate by sound bites and gallop poles. Favouritism and faith in Christ Jesus cannot go hand in hand. God champions the poor. It's no coincidence that a huge majority of the world's Christians are underprivileged and they're often illiterate as well. And we've seen in chapter 1 verses 9 to 11 that the poor can be proud of their exalted position in Christ. You get a feel for the power of this verse when you meet Christians from really poor cultures and countries. James goes on to expound what he delightfully calls the royal law of love, loving your neighbour as yourself and being willing to show mercy because mercy is at the heart of God's heart. It's precisely because parts of the church were slow to demonstrate this royal law and to express God's heart of mercy that evils such as slavery and apartheid developed the power that they did. 
The failure of the church in these issues led to many institutional evils in the world, which could only be reformed at very great cost. There are many things which require actively confronting rather than passively watching. It's not hard to think of many such issues. The important thing is that we should know where our focus is to be in terms of prayer and action. We can't cover everything, but there are some things that we definitely should be doing, and it's important that we are led by the Spirit into those things, rather than acting out of guilt on the one hand, or just assuming there's nothing we can do and sitting down and resting on our laurels in the wrong way. Paul reminds us that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do the good works which God, in advance, has prepared for us to do. Every day brings fresh opportunities to serve Him, and I pray that we'll be ready to take advantage of these and to do things for His glory. What we do have to be free of is our prejudices. Test yourself in this. Float the following places before your inner conscience, and see whether the reaction they induce is prayerful or prejudiced. Pakistan, China, Germany, Japan, your mother-in-law, your boss, your neighbours. Now do the same with other denominations and expressions of the faith. Make a point of praying for strands of the faith that you normally don't have any inclination to think about, let alone to associate with. Be bigger than your prejudices. Let's wait on the Lord for a moment, shall we? On to chapter 3, which begins with a strong warning that teachers will be judged more severely than other people. And why is that? After all, James must have been perfectly well aware that the church desperately needed good teachers. Teachers rate first in line after the prophet and the apostle. Their responsibility for the spiritual well-being of the flock is an awesome one. What James was refuting was the arrogant attitude of those who effectively say, Do as I say. Don't do as I do. It's so easy for those who teach to become proud, because they're the ones who people regularly listen to. Teachers are always at risk of becoming what Shakespeare calls Sir Oracle. You may know the quote, I am Sir Oracle, and when I open my lips, let no dog bark. By and large, most Christians today have very little understanding of the mechanism, if we can put it that way, by which God's judgment operates. I haven't time to explore the subject in depth now. I wrote a chapter on the subject in Ravens and the Prophets to help us to get to grips with the subject and to realise that there are two different sorts of judgement. The first is godly chastening, whilst the second describes the woe and destruction that afflicts hardened sinners. The more we're willing to embrace God's chastening now, the more we will be spared the second fate. 
The Lord knows that you can't sharpen a knife on a pat of butter. He isn't afraid to deal hardly with us, just as a gardener prunes the roses right back because he's thinking of future growth. And that's why we find that people who we would have thought were way beyond the need for such judgment still have to be chastened by the Lord. Now, being chastened by the Lord doesn't automatically mean that we've actually done something wrong. If we have, he'll tell us so clearly. But the Lord often chastens us simply in order to make us more valuable and more useful to him. That's one of the reasons why so many Christians suffer from what we could loosely call thorns in the flesh. Very glad, by the way, that Paul never told us what his thorn in the flesh really was. Because he was so vague about it, it serves as a sort of umbrella term that covers just about any problem which the Lord uses to keep us humble and dependent on himself. The good thing is that the more deeply the Lord touches our life, and the more earnestly we seek him, the more we can be used to pull other people up out of the pits that they've fallen into. Chastening is good. But judgment is horrendous. And James returns to the theme of pure judgment in the first six chapters of chapter 5. And he reaches prophetic heights here using almost Amos-like language to denounce the misuse of wealth, whether by selfish hoarding or dishonest fraud. James declares that God's judgment will fall on rich landowners. I suppose we could liken them to top businessmen and executives today who lead self-indulgent, irresponsible lives hoarding their wealth rather than putting it to kingdom use. The invective is aimed against hardened sinners, but we can apply the challenge in our own lives. You may have heard the story of the farmer whose cow produced twin calves. One was brown and the other black and white. And the farmer promised his wife that once the calves were grown up, um, one of them would be given to the work of the Lord. And until they decided which one that would be, they would be equally treated. A few weeks later, he came into the kitchen all long-faced. Darling, I'm afraid the Lord's calf has died. You know, the brown one. Whoops. He only decided that it was the brown one after it had died. Whoops, indeed. When times get hard, we're always tempted to reduce our giving. Now... We're still in the ministry to this day because a number of dear people have overcome this temptation and been incredibly generous and sacrificial in their giving to us. But the general trend, even amongst committed Christians, is to look out for number one. The things we really enjoy are usually the last that we're prepared to give up. Yet these are the things which may be determining the strength of our relationship with the Lord to a far greater extent than we generally realise. Given that there are many competing calls on our resources, most of us will find it helpful from time to time to ask the Lord if there's anything we're spending money on that we, He would rather that we were not, and whether there are particular Christian organisations or workers that He would have us support or support more generously than we currently are. You might find it helpful to have a time of waiting on the Lord about this now. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we want to dedicate all that we are and all that we do to you. And if there's something, Father, that we are wasting our resources on or that is not deployed to the maximum possible use, I pray that you will convict us, lead us and guide us. In Jesus' name. Amen.
If you had to list three attributes of true religion, I wonder which you'd choose. In chapter 1:26, James mentions the need to keep a tight rein on the tongue. I doubt if that would have been on my list. In fact, if you're anything like me at all, you'd probably prefer to slide quickly over all that James has to say on this subject in chapter 3, because you're so acutely aware of all the hurt and damage that your unguarded remarks have caused. For all the deeds that we've done, which we now wish we'd not done, there are probably rather more words that we wish that we hadn't spoken. If you ever been to the doctor and he or she's just said to you, "Stick your tongue out." Seems odd, but they can obviously tell from this something about how our general health is faring. It's not so different with our spiritual lives. We think we're doing really well until we look at the things that we've said, and suddenly, whoops, we're not doing so well at all. The tongue, says James, is a fire, a world of iniquity, an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our God and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. The tongue is a barometer of where our heart is really up to. John Bunyan created a character called Talkative, who was a saint abroad and a devil at home. I think we all know how quickly we can change from being cheerful and pleasant companions to being suddenly people who are really snapping at each other. I love doing Bible studies on particular words and themes. Roger's new Bible thesaurus makes this really easy. But if you just look up the word tongue in a concordance, or slander, or gossip, or backbiting, or whispering, or defaming, or accusation, or false witnessing, or talebearing, depending on which version you're using, there's plenty of scope there for prayer and repentance for those of us who are given to bouts of foot-in-mouth disease. Jude verses sixteen to nineteen describes a group of grumblers and complainers within the church, who have very prominent giftings, and who make great boasts and flatter people in order to appear big, but who are lacking in love, and therefore cause great divisions. Now listen to this: giftings can take people where their character cannot keep them. Therefore, character is ultimately even more important than gifting. Listen to what Bob Gass has to say on the subject in the latest edition of Word for Today, published by UCB. Before Jesus began his ministry, his father declared publicly that he was well pleased with him. Think about that. After observing his first thirty years, God was pleased with his character, his excellence in the workplace, his treatment of his parents, his faithfulness in prayer, and the study of God's word. God knew that he could count on him. Can he count on you? Some people want to have a powerful ministry, yet they can't say no to their own impulses, or pay their bills on time, or train their children properly, or be faithful to their partner, mow the grass, or take the rubbish out. If you can't take care of your own family, why would God trust you with His? If you can't control your own flesh, forget about pulling down the demonic strongholds over your city.
You won't be placed in authority in God's kingdom until you can put yourself in subjection to the word and to the Holy Spirit. This I say then, says Paul, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. God can find talent anywhere. What he's really after is character and commitment. Instead of looking for great doors to swing open or kicking them down, read the books of Timothy and Titus. Observe the qualities God seeks in those he uses mightily. Then you'll have a pattern by which to build. Your life's goal should be to have God say of you too, This is my beloved child, in whom I am well pleased. Now James isn't advocating that we should all become Trappist monks, or be so afraid of saying the wrong thing that we never open our mouths at all. Far from it. The Lord's always on the lookout for good spokeswomen, men and women, but he is urging us to develop a greater control over what we say. For some of us, this is just a matter of trying to avoid an occasional indiscretion and slip of the tongue. For others, it represents a serious character weakness, which all too often exposes matters that ought to have been kept confidential. Some of us, through pride or insecurity, have become really expert at putting other people down. This may be the result of a mean or negative outlook on life, or it may represent a generational tendency to quench and discourage people rather than to bless and build them up. James spells out the scale of the problem by reminding us that just as a little spark can set great forests on fire, so a word wrongly placed can cause great havoc, especially now that email and the internet can spin rumours around the world in a matter of minutes. A bullet can kill at a considerable distance, but there's no place in the world that the power of the tongue cannot reach. That's why the tongue, like the printed word, is such a powerful force for good or ill. One spark in a forest and there's just no way to put the flames out. There's nothing so difficult to dispel as a rumour. Jesus warns us in Matthew twelve thirty six that we will have to give account for every careless word that we speak. Small as it is, the tongue is a great boaster, as James puts it. The tongue is a fire, he says in chapter 3 and verse 6, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. The word hell is Gehenna, the great rubbish tip that lay just outside Jerusalem seems a particularly fitting word. Satan loves to rootle around amongst the rubbish to find morsels of gossip and slander. He's never happier than when Christians use these things against each other, or when they're unnecessarily sharp and caustic towards each other. James contrasts the untrainable tongue with all kinds of animals that have been successfully trained. Now that process of training didn't happen by accident, but by diligent and costly application with no doubt many a bite and a scratch on the way. Why should we expect to be able to train and control our tongues without serious and dedicated efforts? Therefore, says James, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard but doing it, 
he will be blessed in what he does. To look intently into, parakupto in the Greek, literally means to bend over for a better look. God has planted good desires in our hearts. He wants to give us the desire of our hearts. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. We can water these seed thoughts in hope and prayer until they become beautiful and creative works and projects for the Lord. But to do this, we must still our tongues. It's in the Lord's presence that we learn gentleness, the power that has been rightly harnessed. The understandable temptation we face when we turn to prayer is to rush in and immediately bring all our needs to the Lord. But prayer is about much more than just the sharing of our needs. Matthew Henry said, Silence is the highest form of worship. Don't worry if you fall asleep sometimes when you try to pray or while you're listening to this tape. You probably need it, and it can be refreshing to fall asleep in the Lord's arms. He wants us to enjoy his presence, to be at home in it. James said, My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. If this is true for ordinary life, why shouldn't it apply to our prayer life too? When Mother Teresa was asked about her prayer life, she replied very simply, I listen. I pray that it won't just be at times of great failure or crisis that we really understand and appreciate the value of waiting on the Lord. Let's ask to become more receptive to him day by day, and even hour by hour, so that we're learning to live reflectively, more in tune with the Father of Lights. Let's enjoy a moment of stillness together now. The opposite of stillness is selfishness and inner turmoil. And James has got serious and solemn things to say about this, starting at verse 14. But if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, sensual of the devil, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Now, if you want to do a really scintillating Bible study, it might not occur to you to start by looking up the words envy or grudge in a concordance. But I suspect that few things do more damage in the kingdom of God than envy and grudges. Have you ever tried working with insecure people who are envious or touchy? They're eager for glory, but they're envious of the giftings of others. They're paranoid about being criticised. It's almost impossible to work with them. Whenever anyone makes the slightest suggestion, they take it as a criticism and they bristle and bridle. I pray that the Lord will keep us from being touchy or envious. Proverbs 27.4 says, Anger is cruel and fury overwhelming. But who can stand before jealousy? Jealousy is the longing of the heart for what someone else has. But envy in one sense is even worse because it resents the fact that anyone has it at all. Envy is bitter and poisonous, spiteful and cold, and grudges are like deep, frozen envy. If you find that you're quick to envy and slow to praise others, and that you weigh your compliments out cautiously in such a way as to remain in control of a situation, 
you might find it helpful to explore the roots of your attitude. They may lie in wounds from the past or in a selfish stubbornness that needs to be broken. It's really liberating when we can advance from not just appreciating people, though that's important, but to openly admiring them to their face for being able to do things which we ourselves cannot do, or at least not do so well. This really makes people realise that they're special and what they do is of value. And the more we learn to admire and appreciate people, the more our words will be used to bless and strengthen them. It's particularly important for us Englishmen and Brits to hear this message. The Americans are much better at appreciating people than we are. We seem to be so afraid of making people big-headed that we go to the opposite extreme and take almost like a perverse pleasure in running them down instead of building them up. It's all the wrong way up. We can't lose out by being generous in our praise and lavish in our love. Don't we just love to spend time with people who are enthusiastic, who praise you, who compliment you, who notice things about you? They're just the sort of people we really enjoy spending time with because they refresh our spirits. Let's pray to be like that, full of the ability to motivate people. People work best when they're encouraged and they're enabled to reach out for new things for the Lord. But James then moves on to describe a type of wisdom that does not descend from heaven at all, but which owes far more to those illusts and illicit desires which open the soul to jealousy and party spirit and confusion. And the fruit of this wrong spirit can be seen again in the things that we say. James urges us in chapter 4 and verse 11 not to speak evil of one another, just as Titus does in Titus 3.2 when it says, Speak evil of no man. In these instances, this does not mean speaking falsely, it means don't speak against each other. The Greek verb, to speak evil, is blasphemo. And that's quite an eye-opener. It means that the sin of blasphemy extends beyond speaking words against God to include the words we speak against our fellow human beings. Now, even in prayer, which the Lord has given us unlimited access to and opportunity to do each other good, even in prayer we need to be led by the Spirit because it's quite possible that we end up praying soulish prayers for people, either out of our worry and our concern for them, or out of our expectation of what we think they ought to be doing. It's very important that we ask the Lord to direct our prayers. And when we grumble against each other, we're setting ourselves above the law of God, which commands us not to judge and criticize, but to love and serve one another. When we pass judgments on each other, quite apart from the fact that a far greater complaint could be lodged against us, we're always in danger of usurping the place of God. This is a difficult issue. Leaders in particular walk a fine line. They have to make difficult decisions and appointments, and to do so they're usually obliged to weigh a person's track record, as well as to consider the Lord's specific leading. I wonder, have you got anything to repent of in this matter of blasphemy? of speaking against people, of grumbling. Shall we just have a moment to reflect and see what the Lord says? But let's link that up too with our desire to praise, admire and appreciate people and ask that we can become more consistent in the words that we speak because they reflect the attitude of our hearts.